I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. FM 104's Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. You're listening to Room 104. You can get in touch on our WhatsApp, 87 Now, I don't know if you've ever known anyone with a brain injury or any uh, sort of impairment to their consciousness, but there's, you know, there's a variety of different approaches and treatments that are so, some more effective than others. Yep. But um, there is researchers over in the Imperial College in London who are looking at, I suppose, I don't want to say more controversial, but more... I don't even want to say extreme is the wrong word, but maybe very different ways of looking at treating brain injuries. They're using psychedelics, traditional psychedelics, to see what the impact is on people who might have certain brain injuries. One of the lead researchers who's recently published some research into that is Dr. Gregory Scott, joins us on the line now. Doctor, how are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. No worries. This area has always fascinated me because... Back in the 60s and 70s, everyone, there was this whole movement of doing psychedelics to expand your consciousness, more from a, I don't want to say a personal growth kind of point of view, <laughs> but, but, but that kind of area. And then it got massively shut down and all research was, was stopped for years. It was deemed a class A drug, shouldn't touch it. Yeah. But now there seems to be a, a comeback. Kind of, yeah, comeback, a resurgence in interest in psychedelics and brain injury. So where, how long have you been looking into the impact that they might make on the brain and different injuries that it has? So I should say this idea came about through discussions with Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris. So Robin's been instrumental, really, in pioneering research in psychedelics and this renaissance that you speak of of psychedelic research, him and um, David Nutt at Imperial College. So Robin's recently founded a new centre for psychedelic research at Imperial, and um, that covers a range of both scientifically and clinically motivated work using psychedelics. And as you say, it's part of a new era that's very different to um, the initial um, studies of psychedelics. And Robin's already uh, using psychedelics like psilocybin in patients who have depression, for example, in um, treatment trials. And Robin and I had a discussion a couple of years ago now around the possible use of psychedelics in patients who have what's called disorders of consciousness, which is, if you like, the most extreme form of a brain injury that anyone could have. Typically, these are patients who've had a very severe head injury, for, uh, for example, from a motorcycle accident, or um, a hypoxic brain injury, for example, when someone's had a cardiac arrest and they've been revived, perhaps using a defibrillator like you might see in a tube station, but mm. nevertheless, they've gone on to sustain a very severe brain injury. And together, we, we came across some interesting reasons why psychedelics might be beneficial in these patients for conscious level. And I should say at this point, it's not something that we've tried. It's just an idea and you, you can imagine there's lots of ethical as well as 
scientific and practical issues around doing such a a study but um, nevertheless we're interested in just having a discussion about it really when you mentioned that it's already been used to treat people with depression um, what had been some of the outcomes of those treatments like has it worked well my understanding is that the the outcomes so far are very positive and it's the case that uh, trials of, of uh, you know increasing sort of sizes and stages are being undertaken from initial studies in small numbers of participants where the focus similar to, to sort of general pharmacology studies would be more around the safety and tolerability of the drug and less of an emphasis on on actual clinical endpoints to larger studies where the focus is on you know patients experience of depression and in, in improvement from depressive symptoms and, and my understanding is is that so far the results are very encouraging because i would have thought it would have done the opposite you know, you always hear that like psychedelics would kind of give a high and then a very, very bad low, I guess, afterwards. So I should emphasize that this is um, the program of psilocybin used in depression is uh, driven by Robin. And I'm sure Robin would agree that the the concept of a, of a bad trip, I think, is kind of what you're describing, is very much overplayed. And there's no real evidence to support that the long term use of psychedelics is harmful. And in the sort of acute phase, a, a bad trip happens in a minority of people. And there's certainly many ways to try and sort of mitigate against, against a, a, you know, a sort mm. of a bad experience. And I'm sure Rob would say quite the opposite, that the majority of patients or healthy controls who've done it report the psychedelic experience as being transformative and, and, and very positive. Because I know, like, even growing up, for some reason in my head, psychedelics are nearly worse than heroin and cocaine. There's just a fear or that has been, yeah. and, and they've been terrorized and demonized that, you know, oh, he took acid and he thought he could fly and he jumped out a window. And all yeah. this kind of stuff has been hammered into... I think our brains and our society so the idea of it if you're going into it really really anxious and nervous and terrified it might have you know that might lead to you having a really bad trip but what is it about the compounds or the molecules what do they actually do in the brain that has you so interested in seeing the impact it could have so these drugs act on the serotonin neurotransmitter system. So serotonin is one of many neurotransmitters in the brain, and um, it acts on a particular form of receptor for serotonin. Now, these receptors seem to be very densely expressed in parts of the brain that seem to be important for consciousness. There's something called the default mode network. So this is a collection of brain regions that seems to be very important for consciousness and for our day-to-day experience and subject experience of the world and of ourselves and it seems that these drugs act on this serotonin system uh, as i said that's very sort of importantly uh, involved in conscious experience now the particular reason why we are interested in these drugs in disorders of consciousness well there's several reasons really the central reason is a very interesting observation around complexity and consciousness so Many theories of consciousness suggest a link between the complexity of brain activity and conscious level. And we can think of complexity without going into too much detail as, if you like, the variability or the variability over time in brain activity. So that there's a broad repertoire of states that your brain can visit. Now, that complexity seems to be high when we're awake in the normal waking state and low whenever consciousness is lost, be it through anesthesia or a brain injury or even deep sleep. Now, patients with disorders of consciousness have very low levels of complexity when you measure it using, for example, electroencephalography. Uh, That's where you measure the electrical activity of the brain from the scalp. 
these patients really have the lowest levels of complexity that you can find. Now, what's interesting is that psychedelics seem to increase complexity to levels higher than the normal waking state. So this was really surprising when it was discovered because until that point, every state that was measured seemed to be lower than the normal waking state. So it was interesting to find some drugs that would increase these complexity measures to supranormal levels. And when you correlated a, a subject's a sort of qualitative experience of the psychedelic period um, and how that felt, how strongly that felt, that subjective report correlates with the increase in complexity. So it suggests there's some sort of link between complexity going upwards and the strength of the psychedelic experience. So you could maybe see where this is going and that we thought, well, maybe if these patients have very low levels of brain complexity, maybe these drugs that seem to increase complexity higher than normal levels might indeed increase complexity and therefore conscious level in patients with disorders of consciousness. Now, I should say it's really just an idea at the moment. And obviously there would be, you know, there might be many reasons to think that that, that wouldn't hold and maybe there might be some patients in, in which it would work and not, not others. But that, um, uh, along with several other reasons that supports these drugs, there are p their potential role in plasticity, for example, and learning and cognitive flexibility. There's several reasons why these drugs might potentially be beneficial in patients with disorders of consciousness. And what about like um, trying to get that high? Say if that's not enough and you're kind of, it's only an addiction then, you want to feel even better and better and better. I'm talking about people maybe with depression. So I don't know if it's the case that these drugs are particularly prone to addiction. Um, and certainly in Robin studies, I think even, even in sort of situations where the drugs have been used in just a small number of cases, uh, in just a, you know, a, a few doses, the effects of this are still beneficial. So I, I don't think that that's a particular problem. It's worth saying that there's many ways that these drugs can be used. Mm. Um, so you might be familiar with, say, microdosing sort of regimens. It's also worth saying that I'm, I'm not an expert in these drugs, um, nearly compared to um, Robin and his colleagues. So just on that, you haven't, we haven't yet, you haven't administered any of these psychedelics to people with brain injuries as of yet. That's absolutely right. And we're, we're very far from that. Um, this is really, as I said, just an idea that we've been able to put into the public domain and yeah. to, to raise it with you know, specialists in this area. It's uh, based on a paper that we wrote in a journal called The Neuroscience of Consciousness. So um, it's a, a good fit for, um, for this subject matter. You know, you've mentioned, and in that paper, I think you, you mentioned obviously some of the ideas that you're going with. What are some of the ethical complications if this is to move forward over the next few years? There's many. And I think an important one stems from what you said earlier, that psychedelics, um, for whatever reason, carry an enormous baggage in the public domain. I think some of that already is being fixed, if you like, by this new era of more stringent and ethically controlled study into these drugs. But the legacy of, of a fear of these drugs, particularly around a bad trip, as we described earlier, is of concern. So by that, we mean, you know, an unpleasant, uh, an unpleasant transformative experience where your subjective awareness is not just increased, perhaps, but actually transformed in an unpleasant way. Now, I think that that's really at the heart of the concern about these drugs in general, but it's particularly applied to a group of patients who, of course, do not have the capacity to consent in the way that an aware person or a healthy mm. control participant would be able to. Now, it's also worth thinking about any intervention in these patients. That issue of consent applies to any such intervention, and it's very difficult to 
very challenging to, to argue for any sort of research, any interventional research in these patients, because, of course, it's a balance of the potential benefits of any intervention against the risks. And it's worth thinking of some other examples of studies that have been done already in these patients. And that ranges from the use of existing medicines all the way through to very invasive procedures such as deep brain stimulation. This is the surgical implantation of electrodes that go through the scalp through the skull and deep into the thalamus, an important structure near the middle of your brain. So that's a very invasive, potentially very dangerous mm. uh, procedure. And it's not obvious that in all patients that that would be ethical to do. And I'm not saying because that's been done immediately, these our kind of ideas should be given the green light. But I think it's worth considering what we're proposing in light of the, the range of possible things that could be done. Yeah, you're um, not asking to cut anyone open. It's so we can yeah. admit this at, uh, at safe levels. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, in many respects, you could say what we're proposing is less invasive. It certainly doesn't involve any surgery. There's no, there's no risk of any permanent problems by definition of the pharmacology. This is a drug whose uh, behavior in the bloodstream is very well understood, and we know that it would have a, a limited lifespan in the, in the bloodstream and so on. Uh, um, so I, I think, um, as, as, as I've said, we're, we're simply sort of raising some of these issues. And I think a big, a big concern um, for any treatment in these people is also something called the, the self-awareness paradox. This is, this is the idea that if your intervention, whatever it is, whether it be deep brain surgery or psychedelics, if that were to be successful, the self-awareness paradox is that Someone who becomes more aware of their environment, but also of themselves, in doing so, might find that they are now newly aware of their very unfavorable circumstances. They might realize that they've had a terrible brain injury, that they've incurred an enormous physical disability, that perhaps they become aware that circumstances in their life have changed, that maybe... God, time has yeah. gone past that they hadn't realized. And that's... God, I didn't even you know, think of that. That's, 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 that's shocking, isn't it? idea. And that, of course, applies to, again, every intervention. It's a sort of unfortunate byproduct of a successful effect, if you like. It's almost like the better your, the better your intervention, the more risk potentially there is of that. So that's certainly another concern for all interventions that are aiming to increase conscious level. I suppose our kind of bad trip example is almost a sort of a modification of that, that not only is someone more aware, but the nature of that awareness is in some way altered and in some way unpleasant or unnatural, something unfamiliar to them. And of course, all in a situation where this patient likely was not able to consent to it being done. So you can see why this is fraught with challenges and, you know, concern rightly for the well-being of these patients. And uh, the important thing is to try and balance, as I said, these risks and benefits. Yeah. Could be life-changing, literally. But uh, that, that thing about the whole self-awareness paradox is terrifying me because on the one hand, I was like, if I had a brain injury, I would want someone. I'm, I was there thinking, maybe I should write a will right now or some sort of thing that if I ever get a brain injury, you're more than happy to try anything and everything to, to help me regain consciousness. Yeah. But as you said, imagine you're years in what, maybe a vegetative state or some sort of state like that, and then you wake up and you're fully conscious, but you've lost the use of your limbs kind of thing and you realise that and you're like oh god I'm like is ignorance bliss in that situation so that's <laughs> a little bit but it'd be Stop. worth it though to be able to wake up again I'm just wondering if, if you would then be faced with years of depression because you're sitting there and you're, you're coming to terms with 
would you be rather like I'd rather you, rather you didn't wake me up because I can't I can't deal with this. I'm sure there might be some of that, but yeah, as you said, a minefield of uh, ethical complications. So. Doctor, before we let you go, is that it's a it's a fascinating area of research, and to hear that it's being used in, you know, depression and brain injuries and stuff like that is giving it a whole new lease of life. But for you, where do you what do you hope the next step is for your research? I think it's an idea that we would like to pursue in very small steps. I think so far we've been encouraged by the response we've had. I think it's a challenge to work out where we go. Scientifically, it's worth spending some time thinking what sort of precursor experiments might be beneficial in line with what one might do with any kind of new intervention. For example, are there any animal studies or other kind of experimental studies in in situations before you get to patients that might be, again, ethically more tractable? Are there studies in healthy participants that might be relevant. For example, if patients were asleep or rather healthy controls were asleep and you were to administer these drugs or sedated or anesthetized, are there studies that might in some way inform our ultimate goal, you know, the sort of stepping stones to get there? It's not completely obvious to me if there is an experiment that is sort of necessary before trialing um, such an intervention in, in patients. But um, I think that needs more thought. And just to, just to go back to your point about, the, about how that self-awareness paradox made you, you feel, I mean, I'd, uh, for anyone interested, I mean, that there's an enormous and very interesting literature in the ethics of disorders of consciousness. Um, there's a, a brilliant author called J.J. Finns who's written extensively about the ethics of research in disorders of consciousness. So I really encourage people to, to read more about that. Doctor, if anyone wants to maybe uh, find more of the research that you're doing, do you uh, recommend any websites or social media handles or anything that someone can connect with you on? So you could start by looking at um, our website on uh, Imperial College London. Um, so Robin's website for um, the uh, Centre for Psychedelic uh, Research has its own website. Uh, Robin is, is very active on Twitter, so you could look him up, Robin Carhart Harris. There's a lot of interest in, in his studies. And yeah, I'm always, always happy to... Um, to be contacted over email if anyone's interested in in any of my work yeah. Lovely Dr Gregory Scott the, the Imperial College London Department of the Brain Sciences thanks so much for speaking to us this evening No problem Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue Also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget friendly coverage for you Learn more at UH1.com even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.